this whole idea came out as the many little hammers theory. And the idea is that if there's one big hammer dropping from the sky, it's easier to dodge. But if there's a whole bunch of little hammers coming down at the same time, one of them is going to hit you, right? So the idea is to use a bunch of little hammers on your weeds and not one big hammer because that one big hammer you can start to get around pretty quickly. Hello folks and welcome to the Growing Point Podcast. I'm your host Jeremy Boychin. Our goal with this podcast is simple, to provide Alberta farmers and agronomists with timely, relevant, and valuable agronomic knowledge through interviews with experts in various fields of agriculture. We hope that the agronomic information from this and future podcasts brings value to you and your farm. In this episode, we're speaking with Dr. Brianne Tideman of Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lacombe, Alberta. Brianne did her master's and PhD on weed science at the University of Alberta, and it is an expert in integrated weed management, harvest weed seed control, and integrated crop protection. Along with other projects exploring weed management, she's currently working on studying the effects of the Harrington Seed Destructor on managing weeds and reducing the weed seed bank in soils, which is partially funded by the Alberta Wheat Commission. In this discussion, we chat about challenges around wild oats in Alberta, how the Harrington Seed Destructor works, where it may or may not provide a benefit, and how it fits into our current system and how the technology is changing as it's growing. We also chat a bit about new weed control technologies, such as the weed steamer. I think that's what they call it. I had a great time chatting with Brianne. She has a passion for weed management that comes through in our conversation, and I'm excited to share this very informative conversation with you. All right, let's get at it. Brianne Tideman, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So first off, welcome back to the research. Um, I've, I heard you were away having a, having a child for the past while. Yeah, so I came back in May when my little guy, right, out, right before my little guy turned one actually. And so in addition to running around in the research world, I'm also chasing after him now too. What has it been like getting back into the research after taking that time off? Overwhelming. Um, with, with coming back, uh, no one fills our position with Ag Canada while I'm on leave. So I came back to all of the data from last summer, all of the papers that were waiting to be written, all of the new data that needed to be done for this year, our protocols. So it was just, it was massive stacks of stuff everywhere around me, it seemed like. So it's been overwhelming, but it's also been a ton of fun to jump back into. So I definitely missed it while I was off. <laughs> Sounds like you dove in head first right away. Yeah, I have a bit of a tendency to do that. <laughs> so I, let's get right into it. Why is wild oats thriving so well in our management system? Why are we having such a challenging time with this weed? So wild oats, are, they're a very good weed, um, is part of the answer. And they're well suited to the crop system that we work in. So a lot of our crops are spring annual crops, which means they're seeded in the spring, they're harvested in the winter, um, and wild oat fits that growth cycle perfectly. So they come up at the same time as the crop. They drop their seeds typically before we harvest, um, so they've completed their life cycle by the time we're harvesting their crops, and by the next spring, they're ready to go again. Um, they can flush, so they can come up. You don't get just one emergence of wild oat. They'll come up through the growing season as uh, as we get different rains, and they're just they're a very good weed. They've got dormancy. So even if you could hand pick every wild oat out of a field in one year, you're still going to have wild oats the next year because there's seeds in the seed bank. Um, just They're generally a, a really good weed, which is really unfortunate for us. Um, and then, of course, herbicide resistance plays into that too. So, How, how long can these seeds sit in the seed bank? Uh, wild oats are not as long as something like wild mustard. Wild mustard can be like 100 years. You can still have viable seeds. Wild oats typically between three and five years, most of the viability should be gone. Um, It's sort of like uh, a chemical half-life, you know, where you can say you'll have half of it gone by this time and then you lose half again and half again, but getting right down to zero is very difficult. Uh, And that's the same thing with wild oats. So most of them would be gone within three to five years, but you're always going to have a couple that hang on and might still have some viability here or there. 
it's a low percentage, but there would probably still be a couple. So, I mean, there's a, there's a few challenging weeds that we're seeing resistance issues on. Why, why is wild oats fit into that category? What makes it um, develop these resistance more than more than other weeds? So one of the things with our, I'm just going to generalize that a little bit more even to our grass weeds. Um, when we're looking at controlling grass weeds, particularly in a cereal crop, you only have a few options for herbicide groups that you can use on them. So our group one herbicides and then some group two herbicides, those are really your two big herbicide groups that are available for management of wild oats, which means there's not a lot of diversity in terms of what you can really spray on it, which means your selection pressure for resistance to those herbicide groups increases really quickly. Now, added to that, group one and group two herbicides are herbicide groups that it's not overly difficult for a plant to evolve resistance to those herbicide groups. So because of their mode of action, there are some herbicide groups that it's quite a complicated mode of action or it's hard for the plant to get a mutation where um, the normal uh, substrates in the cell can bind and the plant can continue growing normally, but the herbicide can't. For group ones and twos, that's a lot easier for it to happen. It can make a change where the plant can grow and, and the cells can act as normal, but the herbicide can no longer bind. So group ones and twos are herbicide groups that can plants can easily evolve resistance to, and those are our, our primary tools for managing wild oats. Um, wild oats, they're not as genetically diverse as some other weeds that... that um, can be dealt with. So certainly rigid ryegrass in Australia, um, it's one we talk about a lot. They, it's far more ge genetically diverse. Uh, from what we understand, kochia might be more genetically diverse as well. Wild oats is primarily selfing, so we don't see that same level of genetic diversity. But the sheer numbers of wild oats comes into play, and then the herbicide groups and the selection pressure that we're putting on them. Yeah, and having you know, five years viability or maybe a little bit more in the soil just kind of jumps over our complete rotation so being able to eliminate it with, with a bit of rotation changing is becomes a challenge so it sounds like it's it's uh it has quite the amount of tools to to be strong within our system but um like what what approaches are we taking right now i mean it's it's becoming more of a concern and becoming more of a conversation but what approaches do, do producers have right now to reduce resistance issues or potentially um, increasing resistant weeds on their farm? So number one, I would say, um, would actually be testing for resistance. So if you think you have a group one resistant wild oat, get it tested, know what products will still work on that wild oat so that you can continue to manage it with the herbicide tools that are left to you. Um, trying to be diverse with the herbicides that you're using. So, you know, using group ones and twos where you can, using Trilate or Avidex as a group eight, um, using some of the newer products that have some activity on wild oats, the group 14s and 15s that do have some activity on wild oats um, and things like that. So that's sort of the herbicide uh, side of things. Um, but making sure you've got a competitive crop. Crop competition is incredibly important for weed management. If you have a competitive crop, you're going to have fewer weeds that you need a herbicide application on which means fewer numbers to select for more resistance. So using good seeding rates, um, getting that crop in at the right time where the crop can establish and be competitive, um, using your fertility uh, properly. So not broadcasting nitrogen because wild oats are better at capturing nitrogen than cereals are. Um, you know, using your crop rotation. So something like a winter wheat might allow you to get in there um, earlier in the season and maybe you can prevent some seed set on the wild oats. Um, one of the techniques that Neil looked at quite a bit was early cut silage. So if you're a mixed farmer and you're going to silage anyways, if you can go in and silage wild oats early, you can prevent that seed set and prevent those seeds from going into your seed bank to be more of a problem the next year. So those cultural and management techniques play a huge role on top of, of just the herbicide options is what I'm hearing. Yeah, absolutely. If you can use those cultural te techniques to really um, help manage your population, because 
herbicide resistance is very much a numbers game. The more plants that you're spraying a herbicide on, the more likely you are to find that mutation that causes resistance. So if you can use your cultural controls to try and keep your numbers down and then use your herbicides in addition, you, you drive down your chance of finding that resistance mutation. So with that being said, I mean, we covered um, herbicide control um, and cultural management control, um, but you are doing some research and we've been hearing a lot more discussion on mechanical control. Um, and you've been working on studying the Harrington seed destructor, seed destructor uh, and how that fits into to Western Canadian um, management style. Um, can you maybe tell us a little bit about the Harrington Seed Destructor, how it works, um, and maybe where it, where it came from? Sure. So the Harrington Seed Destructor is one method of about six or seven that fits into this weed control paradigm called harvest weed seed control. And the idea is that um, the weeds that are left in the field at harvest, if they still have seeds on them, a lot of times those seeds are sorted into the chaff in, in your combine um, as it's going through and that chaff comes out the back and you end up basically broadcast seeding those weeds back onto your field. So the whole idea of harvest weed seed control is to do something to those weed seeds to prevent them from going back into the seed bank. Um, it was developed in Australia. All of the harvest weed seed control methods were developed in Australia. Uh, and when we started looking at what the fit for harvest weed seed control in Canada might be, um, we decided to start first by looking at the Harrington Seed Destructor, and there was a couple reasons for that. Some of the other methods required burning, which we didn't want to touch with a 10-foot pole in fall in Western Canada, um, and we don't have the time to do it in the spring, especially when we get early uh, fall snows like we've had the last couple of years and people are still having to combine in the spring, so we didn't want to go anywhere near burning. Um, we didn't want to deal with some of the ones where you have a lot of residue to deal with, so chaff carts, chaff lining, those kinds of things, because again, it, it requires some form of residue management, either grazing or burning or um, dispersing that residue somehow. Uh, and the Harrington seed destructor seemed to make sense to us because it's actually pulverizing the weed seeds, it's actually um, devitalizing those weed seeds, but you still get to keep your all of your residue on the field, so you get all of those organic matter and fertility benefits from the residue, but you've actually done something to those weed seeds to prevent them from, from being viable the next year. Uh, so the seed destructor, we've been working with the toe behind seed destructor, um, which is the original commercialized prototype, uh, and it's based on the concept of a cage mill. So cage mills used to be used for crushing coal and crushing gravel and those kinds of things. Um, and basically what it is is you've got two plates, for lack of another word, and you've got bars that run across the plates and connect, and you've got an inner plate and an outer plate. One spins one way, one spins the other way really, really, really fast. Uh, the seeds come into the middle, and they get basically bounced around on those bars that run across your plates, and the impact is enough that it breaks those seeds apart and makes them non-viable. So it's, it's essentially just smashing that seed and putting it into a state where it couldn't produce anything. Yeah, so it, it essentially pulverizes it. Like, so what comes out is, is very, very fine dust, essentially. Um, and it's, it's pretty hard for a seed to grow when, when it doesn't have the, the resources um, that it would typically have to, to germinate and to emerge. So, so I imagine um, when this was developed in Australia, they had a, a certain weed profile they were looking at controlling. Um, was this the case with your research uh, in Alberta? Was there, was there certain weeds that you were, were hoping to that this would provide benefit for? Um, and maybe are there certain weeds that we don't see it being a benefit for? So, yeah, you're 100% correct that in Australia, the, the weed they were targeting was rigid ryegrass. Um, rigid ryegrass in Australia, it's got a ridiculous resistance profile, um, and it's very competitive, and it's very difficult for them to control. So that's what they were working on. They also had a little bit of information on wild radish as well as wild oat. Now, their wild oat is... It can be and usually is a slightly different species than our wild oat here. Um, so when we were looking at bringing it in, we were hoping it would be really useful for wild oat because it is our number one resistance issue. Um, in my PhD, I also focused on cleavers and volunteer canola uh, as two additional 
uh, common weed problems. Um, there was a master's student at the University of Saskatchewan, Nikki Burton, who also looked at uh, green foxtail, wild buckwheat, wild mustard. I want to say she had a couple others too, but I can't remember which ones they were off the top of my head. Um, and she looked at their seed retention to see if if they might be a good fit for the Harrington seed destructor as well. I was going to say, is there, is there any specific weeds um, that we have seen? It, it, it Like, is it proving to be a benefit for all these weeds or are there certain weeds that just don't seem to be fitting in for it. So the, the only one that I can really say is proven would be the rigid ryegrass in Australia because they've actually got these machines in the fields working in Australia for a couple of harvests. Um, in Canada, we are basing our expectations based on the seed retention. So the measurements that Nikki and I did in our um, graduate studies as well as some additional studies that were done in producer fields looking at how long do they hold their seeds. So volunteer canola looked like a really good target because it holds on to its seeds quite well. Thank you to everyone that's been breeding the pod shatter traits into the canola because that's helping us out here. Um, cleavers looked like an okay target. It loses some of its seeds but still holds on to quite a few of them. Uh, green foxtail, if I remember correctly, looked like a pretty good target, as did wild buckwheat. Wild oat did not look like a good target, um, which was one of the most disappointing findings probably for me in my PhD. Um, most producers know wild oat drop seeds usually before we go in at harvest. They drop their seeds early and they're, they're already gone by the time we take the combine into the field. Um, we have noticed with some of our, our field research that we'll be talking about in a little bit, there, there is some variability in that. Um, we've had some of our fields where when we're in there at, at the time of harvest that 80% of those seeds are retained which makes it a far better target for something like the seed destructor. But then the next field that we go to, there's no seeds left on the wild oats at all. So there is some significant variability there with the wild oat, and I don't think we fully understand what's causing that variability, if it's biotypes, if it's time of emergence, if it's, if it's the crop that it's growing in. You know, we're, we're not really sure why we're seeing that level of variability, but it is definitely there. So... We don't think wild oats will make a great target, um, but there is some things there that we need to look at. We did do some research, and I'm still working on finalizing my stats and my results for it, but we did look at, you know, could you use earlier maturing crops to, to collect more of the wild oats and make it a better target? So we had uh, a trial here at the station where we had... Um, two years of early maturing crops in a row, two years of what I'll call a normal maturity crops, so a wheat and canola, and then two years of a late maturing crop. And we actually collected the chaff uh, at harvest, and then my poor technicians actually had to go through and count the wild oats that were in the chaff, which was a very itchy job, and I am quite certain that I was not their favorite person at that time. Um, but they did it. And we were finding that if you had the two years of the early maturing crops, you did tend to have lower wild oat populations because of the chaff collection than you did in a regular or a late maturing crop rotation. So there might be some ability to um, shift our cropping systems, if you will, to, to collect more wild oats just by including more early maturing crops in the rotation. All right, we're going to pause here and go to a quick commercial break, but we will be right back. As you prepare for the 2019 harvest, take the time to send in a sample of your grain through the free harvest sample program from the Canadian Grain Commission. Your participation in the program has key benefits for Canadian farmers like you. When you participate, you will receive valuable results about your grain. Think of it as a personalized crop quality report, which can help you when marketing your grain. Samples are accepted until November 30th and results will be emailed to you within 15 business days after samples are received. Talk to your grain company for more details on the Harvest Sample Program and to receive your postage paid envelope to submit your sample. Or visit grainscanada.gc.ca. The Harvest Sample Program. Small sample, big benefits. And I, I mean, when, when you talk about something like that, considering a lot of this resistance comes from selecting certain phenotypes and putting pressure on certain, certain growth patterns. So if we start putting 
let's say Harrington seed destructor, um, that pressure on that um, wild oat that's maturing earlier rather than later, wouldn't we then just be selecting for a later maturing wild oat that would potentially get past that timing of the seed destructor eventually? It's very, very possible, um, and there has been some research done on that kind of thing in Australia with wild radish, uh, and they were able to show that if you if you continuously selected um, for basically the earlier maturing wild radish that would drop seeds earlier that you couldn't collect them, you do eventually shift that maturity earlier. So it's certainly one of the risks of the seed destructor, and it's why um, I would never advocate any of these harvest weed seed control methods to be used by themselves. I would never say this is your, you know, this is what you should use, and and you don't need to do any herbicide applications or any other your cultural controls or anything like that. It's intended to be used in an integrated weed management system so that if you are selecting, some of those other strategies can be used to manage sort of the results, right? So if you're selecting for herbicide-resistant weeds, maybe the seed destructor can help you prevent those the seeds from the resistant weeds from going into your seed bank. And if you're selecting for earlier maturing wild oats or earlier emerging wild oats, maybe those herbicides can be what you use to help clean those up too. So it's it's always meant to be used in a so system Just continuing format. with the multi-pronged approach, not leaning on one specific management, whether it's mechanical, um, herbicide, or, or management um, management style. We need to be incorporating all of these different uh, different tools into the system. Exactly. So in, in the weed science world, um, there was a paper a number of years ago by Lehman and Gallant that the, this whole idea came out as the many little hammers theory. And the idea is that if there's one big hammer dropping from the sky, it's easier to dodge. But if there's a whole bunch of little hammers coming down at the same time, one of them is going to hit you, right? So the idea is to use a bunch of little hammers on your weeds and not one big hammer because that one big hammer you can start to get around pretty quickly. So you're telling me that this Harrington seed destructor isn't going to solve a lot of our resistance issues, problems, is, is, is what I'm hearing. It's not going to be a solution. Um, it's not going to solve the problem and we'll never have to worry about herbicide resistance again. And I don't I don't think that we're ever going to come out with a tool or, or a strategy that is going to be that solution. We're, these aren't silver bullets. These are new tools to add to your toolbox, but they're not silver bullets and not going to be the be-all, end-all, save-all. So you're a couple years into um, this Harrington Seed Destructor research. What? How much longer do you, do you have left, and, and what have we found out so far that we can for sure take away from this research? So the field research that we've been doing, so we actually... I'm going to back up a little bit on you here. Um, we started with some stationary work with the seed destructor. So that was the first thing that we did was just not worrying about getting it into the combine and into the seed destructor, but if it went into the seed destructor, how well did the seed destructor work on Canadian weeds? So we had sort of five different factors that we were looking at, which included weed species, um, and we had picked some of the more problematic species, wild oat, cleavers, volunteer canola, uh, kochia, and green foxtail. We looked at weed seed size, so the idea was, you know, if you take away the seed shape, seed coat, all those other differences between species, and all you look at is a small version of the seed compared to a big version of the seed, does the Harrington seed destructor work as well on small seeds as it does on large seeds? Because that was a really common question around, like, kosher, it's so small, is it actually going to work on it? Um, we did chaff volume, so if you have, you know, a heavy crop compared to a light crop going through there, does a heavy crop insulate and protect those seeds a little bit more? We did weed seed number, so if you've got just a handful of seeds going in compared to an entire patch of weeds, again, does the seed destructor get overwhelmed by too many seeds? Um, and then we also looked at chaff type. So most of the experiments were done in barley chaff that we were adding the weed seeds to, and then we also did the chaff type where we looked at barley, uh, wheat, and pea chaff. And basically what we found was all of these factors, yes, they, they do have an impact on how well the seed destructor works. So you don't get as good of control on small seeds as you do on large seeds, but the difference was like point something of a percent. And every sample that we tested was greater than 95% control. So yes, it matters, but in the field situation, no, not really. It works really well, if that makes sense. Um, 
So that was sort of step one of the research was just to see, you know, do we, do we even bother putting this thing in the field? If it can't control kochia, it can't control cleavers, it can't control wild oat, what's, what's the point if we can even get the seeds in there? So that was step one. Then we, the next question that everyone got, gave us was, okay, great, it works if you put stuff in there, but how does it work in the field? Can I, can I, I guess, are, are the, the chaff, um, did, did we see a difference between heavy versus light or the chaff type? We, so we did. Um, there was there was sort of an, an increase as chaff. We had better control as the chaff volume increased, and then it started to decline a little bit. Um, but again, it was within 0.5% or something like that. It was over, I think, 96 or 97% control for every um, sample that we put in. And we went everywhere. So we had 10,000 canola seeds in those ones. Um, that was our, our, our volunteer canola was our, our weed of choice for most of these studies just because um, they're a little bit easier to, to work with when you're doing viability testing. But we went everywhere from the 10,000 canola seeds through by themselves to about a half a five-gallon pail of chaff all the way up to eight five-gallon pails of chaff going through at the same time. So we, we did a pretty wide range of chaff volumes there. And yes, it had an effect, but again, in a field situation, not really. Um, when it came to chaff type, we did see a little bit less control in canola chaff, but I, I put a bit of an asterisk on that one because it was canola chaff. There was probably some extra volunteer canola seeds in that chaff that weren't accounted for when we did our, our viability testing. So th there is a bit of an asterisk on that one where, yes, there was less, but again, it was still well over 95%. So do we really care? Not really most likely. Okay. And would you anticipate these results to, to kind of you know, spill on to those other seed types and sizes, considering this was done with volunteer canola? Um, would you expect that to be very similar? Yes. So when we did the different wheat species, again, the, the control levels were all fairly equivalent. So we did it with volunteer canola, again, beca just because it's easier to grow out, it's easier to find, it's easier, it's easier to work with generally. Um, and we do expect that that would that would be representative of, of those other weeds as well. And then um, for the next stage of, of the research, what, what was looked into next? So the next stage was basically taking it into the field. So what we did is in 2017, we were able to find 20 fields in and around the Lacombe area um, that had a weed patch, basically. So we went out uh, probably starting a week or two ago in 2017, so mid-July, and we started looking for fields that had a weed patch, a fairly big, substantial weed patch. Um, and then we started talking to farmers and talking to them about, about the seed destructor and about this research that we wanted to do. So we found these 20 fields. We went in and we, we counted to see, okay, how, about how many weeds are in here just so we have an idea. And, and we do that by species. Um, and then in harvest of 2017, we brought the seed destructor out with a combine. We have PAMI working with us on this project. So they, they had the combine that had the interface uh, to be hooked up to the HSD. And what we did is our weed patch we divided into basically six blocks. Um, and three of those blocks will get harvested with the Harrington seed destructor running and three of those blocks get harvested without the seed destructor running, so more like a just a normal harvest, essentially. And then what we're doing is we're comparing our, our weed populations in each of those treatments. So we harvested in 2017, we went back in spring of 2018, and we started doing weed counts in the seed destructor plots compared to the untreated plots. Then we harvested again on those exact same spots with the same treatments on the same spot in 2018. And we did our spring counts again this spring. And we've got one more harvest to do. Uh, this harvest will be our last harvest. And again, we'll be on the exact same spots, the exact same treatment in the same spot. And we'll go back out and we'll do our spring counts next spring. And then we'll also do some seed bank sampling. Um, and the reason that we've kept it in the same spot with the same treatment on the same spot is, again, those, the, the weed seed banks. Um, weeds can be a bit of a jerk with their seed banks. So when you put something out like the seed destructor where you prevent the seed bank inputs, you're not necessarily going to see the impact in that first year because it already has a seed bank established and the, ones that, the seeds that are in there are just going to grow instead. 
So we did this over three years to, to hopefully give us a chance to start driving that seed bank down and actually start seeing differences in those populations. Were you looking for a specific rotation type when you were looking for these, these weed patches? Did you want to follow a certain, certain crop pattern or, or did it matter? Um, and maybe why or why wouldn't it matter? The first year that we went in, we did have specific um, crops that we wanted. So we wanted a certain number of wheat fields, a certain number of canola fields, and a certain number of pea fields. Um, and ideally, we would have found a certain number of the, the fields that were swathed and a certain number that were straight cut. Um, and we just we, we did that so that we, we knew we had some diversity in terms of the crops we were working with. By starting with three different crops, hopefully we'll encounter different crops in the rotation um, and, and be able to say that we were really working in a, in a fairly typical producer system, I guess, that, that did have some rotation in there. Um, we would have liked to have, you know, half and half swathed and straight cut just because we believe that swathing will actually allow us to collect more of those weed seeds, which means you've got a better chance at driving those populations down. Um, Unfortunately, it can be quite tough to find swathed cereals, as an example, and it's getting harder to find swathed canola as some guys are moving towards straight cutting. So towards the end, we were just taking what we could get as long as we could find a field that had weeds in it. Um, we also didn't really specify by weeds that we wanted. We just wanted a weed patch, and we wanted to really test this on as many weeds as we could. So we did want to have weeds with wild oats for obvious reasons with the resistance profile and those kinds of things. And I did want to have some fields with cleavers because that's, I believe, a fairly up-and-coming weed problem in Alberta. And I, I think it's going to, at least in central and northern Alberta, become our number two weed problem very quickly if it's not already. Um, so I wanted those two weeds for sure. But we've also got fields that have uh, annual sow thistle, we've got hemp nettle, we've got chickweed, we've got a field that's got some toad flax in it, um, and some wild buckwheat. Pretty much if you can name the weed, we probably have it in one of our fields. So it's, it's a pretty diverse um, weed spectrum that we're covering. And, and so this year, this coming season, will be your last harvest season. Um, yep. Do we do we see any trends leading into this season that you can talk about? Understanding that you know, with one more season left to go, and and the compounding factor that comes with removing seeds from the seed bank, um, is there is, are we seeing any trends? Is there anything we can pull from this yet? So I've only analyzed the weed populations in uh, spring of 2018 at this point. Um, the last time I had a chance to sit down with this data was in June, and my crew was still out doing their weed counts at that time this spring. So I couldn't build in the second year counts as of yet. Um, after the first year, so it would be only after a single harvest, across, averaged across all of our 20 fields and just looking at total weeds, not breaking it down by species or anything, um, there was no difference yet between the seed destructor and the untreated treatments. But there was just a few fewer weeds in the seed destructor treatment. Um, if we looked at the 20 fields individually, I only had one field that had any significant difference uh, between the treatments, and it was fewer weeds in the seed destructor treatment. Now, the other 19 fields, some of them we had fewer weeds in the seed destructor treatment, but it wasn't significant. Some of them were almost equivalent in terms of weed numbers between seed destructor and untreated. And we did actually have one or two that had more weeds in the seed destructor treatment. And initially that, that causes a bit of panic when I'm talking to people, but it's not unusual if you're removing seeds from a seed bank. Um, sometimes what you get is you get what's called safe site competition in a seed bank where there's so many seeds that they can't all possibly grow because they're competing with each other for somewhere that's a good place to grow. And if you're taking some of those seeds out or preventing seed inputs from going in, it might actually allow a larger portion of the seed bank to germinate. So there, there could be some weed ecology, weed seed bank ecology things going on there where we're actually seeing more weeds, or it can just be where we happen to sample and do our counts. So there's, there's some variability to build in there as well. Um, so like I said, that's after one harvest, and it's not surprising that we didn't get a lot more significant results. That's why we're doing it over three years. Um, and I, I will be really interested to see the seed bank results that we, when we pull the seed bank samples next spring as well, because it's not just about what's growing on the field. We get different weeds that grow in different years based on the weather. So we also need to take a look at what's in the seed bank 
to, to really understand what we've done with the populations as well. Considering um, what you'd mentioned, maybe wild oats being in the seed bank for, for five years, um, and knowing that this, this trial is running for three harvest years, do you, do you feel like that's long enough to get um, real viable results in weed profile changes in the seed bank? Um, like, what kind of decrease would you expect over, over that time? And I, I'd imagine each weed is a little bit different, um, but do we feel like that's long enough to get that desired effect? So for something like cleavers, I do think it's, it's long enough. Cleavers doesn't have a lot of dormancy. Um, and so for, some, for something like that, I think we will start seeing some of those changes. Wild oats, it, it was a bit hard to decide um, how long to go because of that three to five year prevalence. But it, it does, you know, by three years, you are starting to see a good proportion of those weed seeds no longer being viable or those wild oat seeds no longer being viable. So I'm hoping by preventing seed bank inputs for three years, along with some of those weed seeds not, no longer being viable, that we'll actually be able to measure that difference. Um, this project, it's it's a very expensive project logistically, trying to move the combine and the seed destructor and the people and the producer fields and everything like that. So three years was sort of what we could justify in terms of cost for a project where we really don't know how well it's going to work yet, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, so still a lot of data to come from this um, and I look forward yeah. to seeing that coming um, but considering Australia has been running with a system like this um, for a number of years longer than us is there anything that we can potentially anticipate or or some foresight that we can kind of gather from from them in terms of concerns or successes um, just curious on your thoughts there. so I know with with the guys that have been adopting some of these strategies in Australia, they've had some really great success in managing their resistant ryegrass. Um, Ray Harrington, who is is the gentleman, the farmer that actually designed the seed destructor, uh, I've talked to him a couple of times, and you know he came up with the seed destructor. He said because he had two choices, he could either quit farming or he could come up with something else to do. Um, and that was in about 2012, I think, that he started working on the initial seed destructor. Well, he'd been working on the idea earlier than that, but really actively working on testing the seed destructor starting in a, started in about 2012, if I remember correctly. I went and visited with him in 2015, and I've seen him in 2017, and he's still happily farming. Um, and a big part of that is by, by adding this harvest weed seed control into their systems that, you know, they, they aren't relying as solely on their herbicides and it gives them a tool to manage some of their herbicide resistance that they can't manage with herbicides. Um, so, I mean, what, what I'm seeing is they've found it to be a really valuable tool for, for the weeds they're dealing with. Um, we're dealing with different weeds and, and that obviously comes into play, but if you can control even 20% of your wild oat seeds with the seed destructor. That's 20% less wild oat seeds to deal with the next year. So it it may not be the solution for wild oats, but it certainly can't hurt, I guess, is, is what I'm seeing in that comparison there. Um, I've, I've talked to people a few times asking if they've seen any of that shift in terms of um, weeds that they could control that they're no longer able to control, and it doesn't sound like they're seeing too much of it in the field. Uh, like I said, they did manage to select for it with wild radish, but that was in a greenhouse situation. So as far as I understand, they aren't seeing that in the field as of yet. Um, one thing I would say is that we're, we are quite lucky that Australia was working on this first because the number of advancements in the technology since I started working on this in 2014 is absolutely mind-boggling. Um, the toe-behind seed destructor that we're using for our research is completely old school. Now you can't even buy it. Um, the technology behind the mill is still the same, so we do expect um, if you were to use one of the newer units, the new prototypes, you would get as good or better control, so our research is still valid, but a producer would never actually have to tow and drag the giant tow-behind seed destructor monster around the field. Now all of the integrated mill units are actually built into the backs of the combine, so you don't have that giant tow-behind unit to deal with anymore, which makes far more sense logistically in the field, uh, and it was always the end goal of the seed destructor to, to move that way. There's more competition now. There's three different integrated mill units now on the market, um, one of them actually from a Canadian company. Uh, so that makes it a lot more 
available, I guess, to Canadian producers and to producers in North America. Um, and again, the, the number of improvements that I've seen, even in the year that I was on maternity leave, when I got back, I had to play catch up on what had all changed in these mills because so much had changed. They're changing materials so that you're not dealing with as much wear. They're adding rock traps because uh, rocks getting into the mills was adding um, premature wear to the mills and, and higher replacement costs. So they added rock traps. Um, <clears throat> they've made it easier to turn them on and off so that you can actually do harvest loss checking and things like that still. Um, when they first built them into the back of the combines, the integrated seed destructors were hydraulically driven. Now all three of the competitors on the market are all mechanically driven. So there, there's been huge leaps and bounds in this technology in the last five years. It's, it's been pretty incredible to watch. All right, it is commercial break time, but we will be right back. Farm Cash, maximize your earning power. Qualify for up to 1 million in cash advances so you can sell when the market is right. Farm Cash offers the first $500,000 interest-free in canola and $100,000 on all other commodities. Plus, we offer a low interest rate of prime minus 0.5%. And with our new online application, it's never been easier to apply. Visit farmcashadvance.com today to learn more. Farm Cash is made available by Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada's Advanced Payments Program. So it sounds like it's available. We could purchase this. A producer could purchase this in Canada. Um, so, so I guess the next question is, is, is what is the cost? And then my question from that is, if we're looking at an expensive add-on to an already expensive piece of machinery, um, how, how can producers really put an economic um, perspective on this? How do we know that that product um, ends up providing value for that producer, whether it be per acre or per farmer, however they decide to look at it. How do we, how do we put that economic um, value on it? So the, the first thing I would mention is that it's not available for purchase quite yet in Canada. Um, the Canadian company is producing it, but they're launching this year in Australia and hoping to launch in Canada next year. Um, but they do have, so Redicott Manufacturing is, is a Canadian company out of Saskatoon, um, and they do have, I, I believe it's a form for expressions of interest or, or something like that for, for their new seed control unit. So that, that's just the one thing I wanted to clarify. Um, in terms of what they cost, all three of these mill, integrated mill units, so there's the IHSD, which is the Integrated Harrington Seed Destructor, and I think it's IHSD V2. 12, I should look that up to be sure. Um, there's the seed terminator, which has a slightly different mill system, um, but still works on the same principles of, of devitalizing those seeds. Uh, and then there's the Redicop seed control unit. So those are the three uh, integrated mill units. All three of them are between approximately 80000 to to 100000 Canadian dollars. It seems like a big number, but um, the tow behind unit started at $200,000. So we, we've come down a far ways from where we started. Um, and I do expect that that will continue to drop as competition continues to enter the market. I've heard rumors of a fourth mill system, but haven't seen anything officially launched yet. Um, but as, as competition enters the market, the, those prices do tend to drop. And as we get better, better prototypes as well, um, those those costs should continue to drop. In terms of putting the economic numbers on it, um, it's it's a very different perspective um, than what we might typically take with equipment. So you have to think about it more as a herbicide cost in terms of your weed control costs. So if you do your herbicides in dollars per acre and you have weeds in your fields that are resistant, what does it cost you to put down a herbicide that's not going to work? What is that cost? What is the cost of the yield that you're going to lose from those weeds continuing to compete with your crops? What is the cost of the quality loss of your crop because of those weeds being in there? So those are costs that you have to look at first. Then you look at something like the seed destructor and go, okay, it's $100,000, but how many years am I gonna use it over? And how many acres am I going to use it over? And what does that make my dollars per acre use of the seed destructor? How does that compare to the dollars per acre I'm losing in having to add new herbicides in or having herbicides that don't work and the yield loss and the quality loss? So it's, it's a very comparative economic type of 
analysis that you have to do where what are you losing? What could you lose in the future if you lose something like glyphosate? If we get glyphosate-resistant wild oats, then what do we do? What is that going to cost? And how does that pencil out? It's, I fully understand that convincing producers to shell out $100,000 when they need to keep their farm alive can be a really, really tough argument. It's more of a long-term comparative analysis that you have to do to make it pencil out. Is there any kind of tools in place for producers right now to kind of look at those very complex questions of, of you know, how much is this costing me now and how much can it cost me in the future? Is there anything in Australia that maybe could be translated to Canadian producers or is there even anything in Australia that, that can be used to answer some of these questions? That I know of off the top of my head, no. Um, they do have the RIM decision support system, which is the Rygrass Integrated Management Decision Support System. Um, I'd have to go back and look at that. I know they were talking about adding harvest weed seed control into that as an option. I don't know if they have. I want to say they have, but I haven't looked at that for a bit. Um, and I don't know how it works in terms of how they break down seed destructor costs and replacement costs and, and those kinds of things. I don't know how much is all in there. Um, but no, I know Hugh Becky when he does his resistance surveys, um, and now Charles Geddes is taking that on. When when those resistance surveys are done, there is a producer questionnaire that goes out with it, asking about their perceived cost of herbicide resistance. Um, so the perceived cost of having to either add additional herbicide products um, or switch to a more expensive product as well as the costs of your yield loss and your quality loss. Um, so the Alberta 2017 survey, those results are just coming out from Hugh Becky and from Julia Leeson. And the perceived cost from that survey was $17 per acre. So it, it sounds like maybe towards the economic side, we, we have a bit of a bit of work to do maybe to get a full understanding of how it may impact economically um, producers if they if they do invest in a product like this. What how do they understand what value they may be getting back from it? Because that's obviously a very important factor um, that plays into this role. So understanding that this does not look like the the silver bullet that can solve us from all these resistant weed issues and it's not going to cover every single weed profile um what what maybe are the next steps once we get an understanding of how this fits in i mean i've been hearing uh, about chaff lining um, the new weed it system looks pretty interesting and then i heard the other day about an organic producer who had developed a steam-based um, weed control system that essentially uses very hot steam to to kill off weeds um, are these anything that could can you know, play a role in this, or, or are we missing anything that maybe um, Australia is already already utilizing? Um, what's the next steps? I guess. So one of my interests for sure is in the chaff lining, um, and the reason for that is it's still a harvest weed seed control method. It doesn't actually kill the weed seeds, but it, it limits their area in the field and, and might leave some room open for um, site-specific control. And anecdotally in Australia, they're getting sort of a composting effect in those chaff lines, which is driving down some of those weed numbers. The reason I'm interested in chaff lining is most of the guys in Australia have basically welded their own or created their own shoots. So their capital cost of beginning to use it is five to $700. So it's, it's a much more reasonable price tag for someone that wants to try some of these harvest weed seed control methods and see how it works. But again, it might require additional management um, to manage those chaff lines, um, and it, it may have impacts on, on crop emergence and things like that. So there's, there's a few things there that we don't understand, but cost-wise, it might make um, a more palatable option for, for guys to start trying this type of weed control method. Um, the weeded, I'm really interested to see um, how that catches on here. Uh, certainly site-specific management is always a better option in terms of um, decreasing your likelihood of selecting for resistance. If you're broadcasting it, uh, broadcast sprays are just are more likely, again, to find those, those unique individuals that have the mutation. Um, and particularly, it'd be very interesting to see something like the weed it move into where you've got um, the species recognition and could do specific tank mixes based on species recognition and, and things like that. So I'm really interested to see where some of that site-specific management and the technology goes to as we continue to improve those technologies. Um, 
And in that sort of vision-guided uh, stream of things, there's also uh, inter-row tillage systems that are vision-guided that can be used within six-inch rows. So doing an inter-row tillage instead of a in-crop spray. I know tillage can be a bit of a dirty word out here, but, you know, maybe we can use it strategically to help manage some of that as well. And if you're doing it in the growing season when you have crops and roots and things to still hold the soil down, do we see that same level of erosion? I don't know. I don't know that it's really been looked at out here. So that's another area and sort of that, that vision guidance that I'm interested in. Um, when it comes to like the steam-based controls or the hot water-based controls, um, I just read a paper on hot foam controls. There's a lot of interest there. It's figuring out how to make it work in our annual cropping systems. So even right now, the Weed It, it works really well for pre-seeding because it's green on brown recognition for pre-harvest um, and desiccation and those kinds of things, which I think that's really, really interesting. But how can you apply it in season as well? Um, and something like a steam-based system, how do you use it to control your weeds without affecting your crop? So it's, it's a really interesting idea, and I'm really excited to see some of that being developed but I want to see the next step to it, too, is how are we going to use all these vision-guided technologies to make it fit in our system where you could actually apply a steam-based weed control in crop without affecting your crop. So I, it's really exciting, and I, I don't really know what the next step is going to be because it's, there's a lot of things developing really quickly. It is exciting to see all the, the different techniques starting to come down the pipeline and what the opportunities of those techniques as new technologies integrate into those um, weed control technologies as well. How can we further apply those to be more selective um, and, and to be more accurate and, and have better control and reduce our risk of resistance? It's exciting to see um, some of those things. And, and when we talk about tillage as a potential weed control method again, even if it is select tillage, it just makes me think, you know, I'd love to, as much as, as having weed researchers on that side, I think pulling in those soil researchers to be a part of that as well, I think would provide a huge benefit to the research and the producers because, um, I mean, it's it's not a silo, right? As we do these, this Absolutely. weed research, we, we can't ignore the fact that um, these tillage methods are going to be impacting that soil structure, um, how we're yeah. getting some of that water permeating into the soil and how well it's holding and how well those root structures grow in that soil. So I think making sure that we're working in these not in silos is 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 a good approach to take to some of these things. Absolutely. And I, I'm kind of lucky that I, I got to come up um, into the industry working with, you know, Neil Harker and John O'Donovan and Kelly Turkington and that, that already had that type of system established for a lot of their projects. So, you know, that when they were working on an agronomy project or a weeds project, that there was a pathology side and an entomology side and a soil health side or a soil microbiology side, they were already pulling a lot of those people in or, or um, an egg economist in a, in a lot of their projects. So I, I was lucky enough to kind of be, be trained by people that were already thinking that way, which makes it a lot easier for me to think that way as well. So I, I definitely consider myself lucky that way. And plus, I got to steal some of their contacts for who to talk to about soil health or, or entomology or those kinds of things. So, Well, Brian, I mean, we've been chatting for 50 minutes now. So um, this has been great. I, I've, I've enjoyed this very much. Um, I mean, we've pulled a lot of information from here, and, and I do very much look forward to seeing the results of this Harrington trial to see where we can maybe implement it and it, it providing benefit for our systems. Um, but, yes, thanks again, uh, and I look forward to the next time we chat. Uh, thank you, and I, I'm not going to lie, I'm really excited about the results too to see if it's, if it's worth it or not. So it, it should be good fun over the next couple of years for sure. Wonderful. Well, thanks again, Brianne, and uh, we'll chat soon. All right, everyone, thank you for listening to the Growing Point podcast. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please take a, take a second to rate us and review the podcast and even share it with your friends. And as always, even if you don't have any friends, share it with whoever you walk by. This helps us grow and helps us get our message out there. You can also sign up for the Growing Point newsletter by going to albertawheat or albertabarley.com and sign up on our mailing list. This will help you stay up to date on all the agronomic information we share through articles, interviews, and newsletters. See you next time.